Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Welcome to the show, Nat Turner. Super excited to have you on. This has been a guest that we've been looking to get for a while. I mean, he covers so many elements of alternatives from entrepreneurship to equity investing to cards to games and more. Thank you, Nat, for joining. No, no pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. So let's just get started where it all began. Can you just tell us how did you get into alts? Obviously, you started a company, but just give us a roadmap as to how you got investing into all these different things. Um, yeah, I was probably, you know, I was a little kid and I, I really enjoyed uh, collecting cards. Um, I think uh, probably when I got into middle school, I started realizing if you have cards of good players and they continue to play well, their value will go up. Um, it, that wasn't why I was collecting, but it became like a nice little fun thing to do. So I was buying, well, I made a couple bad decisions, like I invested in Steve Francis cards and you know, guys like that. But I picked LeBron James in 03 as a good example of one wow. that worked. I have many that didn't work, but that one worked really well. Um, yeah, so cards. And then I, I never really got into other, my dad's a big coin collector. Um, so I've bitten, gotten bitten by that bug a little bit. Um, and then, uh, you know, have always kind of preferred having uh, cool, nostalgic assets around me instead of, uh, you know, T-bills and things like that. <laughs> so, so did you start uh, buying uh, cards and things like that, or did you build your first company first? What happened first? Oh, I, cards were my first, yeah. So I was a card dealer as a middle schooler and high schooler. Like I would display at shows, you know, nice. um, at the, you know, the hotels, hotel ballrooms, um, you know, pretty much through high school. Uh, and then I started, well, actually, so I needed, I, I became an engineer in a way, a front-end designer and could build websites because I needed to build my own website to show off, you know, cards that were for sale or whatever else I was selling. I was selling other things too, like reptiles and all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, I got into computers thanks to, uh, you know, car. I actually looked my eBay account the other day and my PayPal account. I set them up when I was in eighth grade, uh, which is a good example. Like that's when I started getting on eBay and buying and selling. Uh, Vince Carter was the first big card I purchased, the SPX wow. Finite Rookie. Uh, it was like $180 if I remember. That was one of the first things I bought on eBay. So, And was that graded? No, no. In fact, I did not really buy graded cards until, well, I submitted my first card to BGS in 2000. It was a Steve Francis Upper Deck Game Jersey card. I still have it and a finest rookie. Um, I didn't really submit much, to be honest. I would buy mostly raw. Most of the cards I collected were raw because I collect 90s cards. Those didn't really, I collect vintage baseball too, but but 90s basketball didn't really hit grading until like 2000, frankly, 2010 or 15. Wow. And so you then transitioned that uh, after college. You I mean, you create some amazing companies. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I started um, an online advertising company, software company called Invite Media, which was uh, it optimized banner ads online. wasn't the coolest, <laughs> coolest thing ever, but uh, it was uh, a really fun experience. Really cool tech, the technology that we built. Um, we sold that in two thousand ten, 
And then in 2012, started a cancer software company that does big data research um, using real world, um, real cancer patient data. So think of like everything outside of clinical trials, trying to learn from the experiences of patients uh, in the real world and routine cancer care. And we sold that in 2018. So we can obviously have a whole nother podcast just with your entrepreneurial knowledge. Uh, but then I think you parlayed that into a bunch of angel investing and now a fund. Um, what was the thinking there? Uh, yeah, I've been doing angel investing since 2010, since, since selling invite uh, media. Um, you know, I, I love being around other entrepreneurs. Uh, it certainly is a good investment too. Uh, I think if you do it right, you know, we have a good network. My business partner, Isaac, we have a good business, you know, relationship, I would say with a number of um, entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, largely, well, frankly, folks who worked at Invite or Flatiron is where a lot of it comes from. Folks that kind of, you know, leave and start their own thing. And we pretty much have a blank check for anyone who worked with us, took the risk to work with us, and then wants to go start their own company. So most of the companies we're involved with, um, you know, we had a relationship with the founder prior to their, um, to the investment. And yeah, we parlayed that. We, we've, we've now hired a team, they're sitting over here, uh, that uh, does, frankly, most of the heavy lifting of kind of uh, diligencing these companies. You know, we, we still bring our network to the table and spend a lot of time with the companies, you know, when they need help, you know, we're a phone call away or a WhatsApp away. Um, but yeah, it's just more scalable. So we can, we can kind of, we do about one or two investments every week, actually, in a private company. Wow. So um, with all that experience, what kind of advice would you give to the listeners about thinking about getting into angel investing? Ooh, uh, wait until you uh, <laughs> until you can afford to incinerate a pile of money on fire <laughs> because it takes about 10 or 15 years to see any sort of, um, you know, return. Um, it's it's a good it's a good investment, but you have to have just an incredibly long time horizon. Um, you basically just have to invest it and forget about it. Frankly, Got it. Uh, uh, we like to talk about all the various asset classes. So are, are you into art, like traditional art? Uh, mm -hmm. And nope. for example, like why not art versus like sports cards? Is there a reason that you stay away from that? I have one piece of art. It's a, I'm a big golfer. It's a really cool golf piece. Um, you know, I don't know. I frankly, a lot of the like really good. So I'm really into scarcity value. That's, that's like my thing. So I went and I mean, it's not a, it's not rocket science, but in cards, it drives everything in my collecting and in art, you know, unless you're buying originals, like lithograph, like it's just fake scarcity to me. And the originals are just really, really expensive and I can, and they never spoke to me. So like whenever I would see a sports card, like I'd rather own a Michael Jordan PMG green, which was like a 10th the price of, you know, some piece of art that I've never even heard of the guy. So for me, it was like very nostalgic, um, the card thing. I didn't have any nostalgia or like connection to art. Um, but that's not to say it's not a great investment. I'm sure it's frankly better than cards, but it just wasn't something that I was ever going to get excited about. Maybe maybe one day. But You mentioned you know. scarcity. What, how do you evaluate scarcity? One of one, 10 available, 100, 1,000, 10,000? What's, what's well, it's complete, yeah, it's completely dependent upon the demand for it. But, um, you know, ideally you have high demand and low, low supply. Uh, you know, it can be, I'll give you examples, like PMG Greens, there's 10 of. There's not that many people who collect them, but there's only 10. So you only need at least 10 people to make a party. Um, so it's, you know, that's scarce. Do you go look at the Michael Jordan 86 Fleur Jordan PSA 10? There's 316 of them or whatever it is. That's actually still scarce because the population of people who go after those 
specifically is much larger than say PMG Greens, and so it's, there's a party there too. So it, it's really just dependent on on, on demand. Um, for me in cards, it usually is like sub 50 or 100 things. Um, like a good example is LeBron James rookie patch autograph. There's 99 of them. There's way more than 99 people who'd like to own that card. So, you know, to me, that's an extremely scarce card, um, even though there's 99 of them, which most people would say is still relatively common in cards. And then um, just for the audience, what's PMG stand for? Precious Metal Gems. So that's like a specific type of Michael Jordan card. Yeah, it's a card from 1997 metal that there's a red version, there's 90 of those, and a green version, there's 10 of them. Emerald and ruby, ruby and emerald. I know from your Instagram, you know, you posted that and you have a great following for people that want yeah. to uh, check out your Instagram. Well, for example, like I think I can probably name only like 12 or 13 people that like obsess over that set. I'm sure there's hundreds or thousands that love the set but don't, aren't, aren't collecting it. But that's all you need, you know, and that's scarcity, so... And then what do you think of uh, uh, crypto? Uh, I'm not an investor in it. Uh, in, in many, in like any, you know, I have a couple of startups that I'm involved with that are in crypto, which that's kind of the way I'm playing it is, you know, let the startups, you know, pivot and work their way, work their magic. But um, as far as owning the currencies, if you call them that, I'm not, that's not my thing. But I mean, I understand it. I mean, it's a, I have a lot of, you know, people who I think are very smart who've gone, you know, spending a ton of time and money and energy in that in that area. Um, you know, it's again it doesn't speak to me. It's not tangible. I like things I can hold and feel. But um, and I, you know, I know exactly how many of them there are. That is one of the appeals, I guess, of of things like Bitcoin versus NFTs. Is like you actually, you know, in theory, it's more finite. Um, although NFTs also, but it just feels much more um, ununique, to be honest. Got it. And then uh, real estate. What do you think about real estate investing? Uh, I just own places that I um, live in. I'm not. Um, I think it's a great investment, but there's just a lot of overhead to it, in my opinion. Like you just got to worry about property taxes and um, tenants, and I don't know. It's just too much, too much effort. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, if you, it's so different. It's like, you know, you're basically playing for uh, appreciation and property value. Um, the margin has gotten, in my opinion, has gotten sucked out of, you know, the arbitrage of, you know, rent and tenants and, and costs. Uh, you know, it's a sub 10% business annually cash flow. If you are doing a good job, and as far as I can tell, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but however, if you buy scarce things like a plot of land in Manhattan or Brooklyn, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way to do it. Find a town that's, you know, Austin, Texas, five years ago, that kind of thing. I'm sure it's great, but it's just too much work. <laughs> it sounds like scarcity is the con consistent word uh, across yeah. all your various uh, investment thesis. Well, not, uh, the, oh, I do a lot of equity investing, though. So, you know, that's not so much scarce as it is, you know, picking good companies. Meaning public markets? Mm -hmm. Got it. How do you like to think about the diversification of your uh, portfolio across the various alts and then into the public markets or maintaining in like cash, et cetera? Um, I've actually never put a ton of thought into it. You know, I make sure I have enough cash on hand, you know, for lifestyle purposes. And then the rest, I don't mind if I'm fully invested. It doesn't really matter to me liquidity either. I know that's crazy, but at my age as, you know, to, to be practical about it, like I can have a really long time horizon. So like startup investing, for example, 
makes a ton of sense for, for myself, but maybe not to my grandfather, for example, because you know he's 82 years old. Um, and you have to wait 15, 20 years for these investments to mature sometimes um, before you actually want to sell them for, you know, taxes make it really difficult to sell things uh, these days. And so you want to hold as long as possible. Um, so, you know, I would say if I look at it, though, maybe half, I mean, it's a lot. It's probably more than most people are comfortable with. But I'd say probably half of my, um, you know, assets are, are in illiquid startups, alternatives, I mean, startups are alternative investments, right? They're not liquid. Um, so I'd say it's probably close to half. I, my goal is to make it higher. It's hard. I mean, you can't, there's not enough great startups and great sports cards and great things to buy, actually, at the end of the day, that if you're being really, um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, discerning. You know, you could certainly, like, waste money in startups. You can waste money in anything. Uh, it's really easy to do that <laughs> if you're just trying to deploy money. <laughs> yeah, what's the line? Like, if you want to become a millionaire in LA, you start like a billionaire and you invest in movies. Yeah, or build a golf course, or yeah, start a <laughs> restaurant, or any of those things. Exactly. So it sounds like uh, around fifty percent, or maybe a little over, on the private e-liquid alternatives. But then there's you still have your public markets uh, allocation, and then kind of your kind of living life allocation. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So in the um, entrepreneur space, again, I just want to, before we move on to the card, since you're so knowledgeable, we'll get to that in a second. Um, any other things of like your learnings, you've been investing now for well over a decade into these startups. What are the things that you see as, you know, now the Nat today knows better than the Nat when you first started uh, angel investing? Mm. Um, should have started a team earlier to do it with me. Uh, it, was, it was too... Uh, uh, too many opportunities. I missed too many opportunities just because I didn't have time that day to get on the phone or to hear the pitch, you know, because startups move really, really fast. You know, they can start on a Monday and by Friday their seed round's done, depending on who the team is. So you really have to move quickly. Um, so I would have hired a team much sooner. That's easy. You know, that's an obnoxious thing to say, but like you, you do, if you have the means for it and you want to build a fund, like you, it's competitive. I mean, you real allocations matter. Uh, you know, if, if they're raising 500 grand, you know, and you want to put 25 grand into it, there's probably 50 other people who are onto that too. And you got to convince the entrepreneur why you're going to be more helpful to them because the money is not, no, not money's not created equal anymore in startup land. You know, it's, it's very much attached to your value add after the, after the investment. So that's what I would have done to scale angel investing faster. Um, I can think of a bunch of companies that I missed investing in just because of that. Um, yeah. Not everybody gets the benefit of having multiple exits like you and having really large exits. How are the listeners supposed to try to break into angel investing? What's the value add that they can provide? Like, how can they get a piece of that 25K you're mentioning that's being competed away with 10 other people? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, it's probably against what you want to hear. But like, I would actually just go get operating experience in startups so that you can add value if you don't already, if you don't already have it. Um, angel investing in startups is really, really, really hard unless you have a unique uh, you know, perspective that that entrepreneur or founder who's going to take your check, you know, will benefit from. Um, again, it's easy for me to say having the, the operating experience, but, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs who are raising seed rounds, you know, again, money's not created equal. You got to get, uh, you know, you got to bring value to the table and I, it could be anything. I mean, you, you could be a crypto expert. You could be like, for example, my collectibles experience 
is actually helping my angel investing quite a bit these days because there's so many startups being started in collectibles. You know, I get a lot of those looks. Um, you know, so stick, and I would say stick to what you know, therefore, is a good, you know, if you don't go investing in, you know, ad tech, if you don't know ad tech, um, same with healthcare. I mean, everything sounds good in markets you don't know anything about. And that's the problem. You're going to get, you know, <laughs> sold a bill of goods. Um, you know, looking back, I mean, the stuff we were investing in in healthcare back then, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe we made some of those investments. You know, after having done Flatiron, we realized, you know, how stupid that was. So that's, you know, stick to what you know and then get some experience that's unique. Got it. And let's transition now to the collectibles and card stuff. So, um, you know, you took CLCT private. Can you just tell us about that? Yeah, it was a really fun and stressful period of my my life. Uh, I know for the board and, and Joe Orlando, who was the CEO at the time, um, well, it's a great company. I mean, I've been obsessed with PSA, which is one of their brands under Collector's Universe for 10 plus years. Um, I My time at Flatiron was winding down, so I was trying to figure out what was next. COVID had just hit. This is, you know, 2020, mid-2020. And um, I really wanted to get into cards as a business uh, just because I, I wanted to be able to, you know, frankly, make a job out of something I love. And at that time, cards and still has always been probably number one. And so it was perfect. And I looked around at all these other companies. Unfortunately, it was a public company that was quite expensive and getting more expensive by the day at the time. This is when like COVID stocks, you know, Peloton, all these others were going crazy, Zoom. And CLCT was no exception. I mean, it had like quadrupled or something. So put together an investor group. Uh, you know, I'm very passionate about this stuff. So I, I was thankfully able to communicate you know, quite quickly, kind of what the opportunity was. And, and I had a vision for it already, you know, had for years, honestly, just trying to help them from the sidelines with unsuccessfully, um, just because they had their own thing going and just decided the only way to make it happen is to buy the whole company. Like I can't just be a board member or, you know, an investor in the public market. I had to run the thing. Um, and so, yeah, we put it together. It was a long process. It took, uh, and it closed on February 8th, 2021, but it was, we probably started in earnest the summer before. So it was like a six to nine month process. We got it done. That's amazing. I mean, it's been a huge impact in the industry. When, when you were looking to uh, take them private, I mean, did you already have the grand vision as to where you could try to take it? Um, that, I would say like 90% of it uh, for sure, because you know it was an expensive, I think we had to end up raising like $900 million or $850 million to get it done. I mean. It's, you can't, it's a lot of money, you know, like I wasn't, certainly wasn't able to afford that all on my own, uh, I wish. Uh, and so I had to go convince, you know, most of that to, to come from people that, most of whom I had never worked with before. Um, so yeah, I had to have a vision in place. Uh, but I mean, honestly, even before I started pitching it, I, I knew so much about what their opportunity was. Um, because I mean, I was, I mean, I am, I was one of the biggest collectors of their product, you know no question not not to be bragging about it but like i knew so much about it and so and i knew some of the team and like i just had a really i was very confident that you know my vision was was uh going to work now we'll see if that actually is proven out it may not but um you know the the concepts like i had this big strategy document like 24 pages it became of just running notes of things that i was just when i thought of something i would add it and 
you know, I went through it the other day and like we're working on most of those things. A lot of them are stupid, by the way, that we're not going to ever do. But, you know, like the four or five big ones are certainly consistent today with what it was back then. So I, I'm just really excited because it was, you know, it doesn't feel like work, honestly. So um, Can you share some of those, those four or five pillars as to where you're trying to head with taking the company? Yeah, big one is, um, it sounds really stupid, but just, you know, image capture. So uh, the PSA, for example, was not taking pictures of every card. And so collect, I mean, we're grading 40, 50,000 cards a day. And that's just creating work for the, the people who submit them. So if you want to vault those things, if you want to sell those things, if you just want to collect them and look at photographs, because you're not, you have 10,000 slabs, you're not going to, even 1,000 slabs. Like, if you want to find one, the best way to do it is through Instagram or Flickr or something else or Google Photos, whatever. And taking an image of every card is actually really, and I've been doing this for decades, you know, scanning them front and back and combining them in Photoshop. I do it like an hour a day. So I'm like use case number one of trying to get, get you know, save that friction, get rid of it. So that's number one. It's just we're going to build the infrastructure. And by the way, it's really hard. you got to take front and back photos raw and ungraded of 40 to 50,000 cards a day. All of a sudden, that's like 150 to 200,000 images every single day at high resolution that you'd be, you know, comfortable using across these platforms. And so that's number one. Um, number two is category expansion. Um, so the company was really good at coins and, and cards, but, you know, they weren't in things. I pulled a couple out to show you, like video games. Nice. Um, yep. So that's a good example. Um, here's a, another example. So they were in coins, but now we're doing banknotes. They were doing banknotes bef right before we bought the company, but we are throwing gas in the fire. Um, we've got three more categories, and this year we're going to launch. Um, Which so one? Categories, oh, I can't say yet. Oh. <laughs> Category expansion um, was a big one. And then third is just technology investment. So we were, the company was, I'd say, really behind. Um, it was run, you know, very frugally. And, you know, we're, frankly, taking a lot of the profit that it was making and reinvesting into um, software. So things like automating parts of the grading process to help the graders be more efficient and consistent. Um, good example is more tools for collectors, things like card ladder, which we just bought. What's my, what's the value of my collection? You couldn't do that on psacard.com up until, you know, recently. Um, set registry, you know, we had a lot of vintage collectors using set registry, but very few modern, ultra modern. So we're building things with, with software to, uh, you know, help ultra modern and modern collectors get more value out of the set registry. Those are just some things. Top three, probably. And how much uh, do you want to vertically integrate uh, your company to, quote unquote, own the industry? Or where do you want to stay away from? No, we, yeah, we, we have no interest in, you know, like owning. There's a value chain in this hobby um, that we're very respectful of. You know, people print the cards, open the cards, grade the cards, sell the cards. Moving upstream to us is really interesting. But, you know, it's not our forte. Like, that's you know, fanatics now and tops and Panini, we, we respect the crap out of them, but they're, that's their job. Um, you know, we want to be the best kind of, you know, greater third party grader of cards. Um, we do, uh, though get a lot of feedback from customers that a major part of collecting is helping them find things. And so we actually do have a big ambition to help collectors match make you know, with the cards they need or with the cards they want to offload. So that's why we acquired Golden last year. Um, it's our biggest request, actually, is when you're in the set registry, you have 600 cards you're chasing, there's 238 you're missing. Help me find those 238. Or I just graded a card in the grading room. I graded it to sell it. Help me sell it. You know, that's, for example, images. You know, for example, I don't want to ship that thing five times. 
for example, I don't want to throw it on eBay and then someone say they don't want it after 30 days and return it in an empty box. Like there's just so much friction in the downstream of us process that, you know, we do, and we don't want to be the only one. We think the, the tide rising will help everybody. Um, so we're trying to get kind of the whole hobby uh, a little more elevated, you know, more trusted. That's our vision, you know, with PSA is the little vision is you collect, we protect. Um, so, you know, we want to make sure when you buy a slab, you trust it. That's why we have guarantees. No other grading companies do. You know, if you buy a PSA slab and the card is fake, we'll buy it back. You know, that's the kind of stuff we'll stand behind in a marketplace as well. So, yeah, in terms of the the market, you mentioned Fanatics. Obviously, they're the big behemoth and came, quote unquote, out of nowhere. Then, you know, the top spec uh, went sideways and now they have tops. Um, at, in, the, in, in parallel, there's all these startups for our listeners that have come out in the last few years, some of them into fractional ownership. You know, what do you think of all the startups uh, and, and what do you think needs to happen for this asset class to really get institutionalized like some others? Yeah, we need, honestly, we need way more venture funding and startups like we're seeing to enter the space, to legitimize it and build the infrastructure and tools that we all need as, you know, I'm more of a collector, but, you know, you have the alt investors coming in, you know, real-time pricing, liquidity, um, removal of friction. I think StockX did that and Goat a bit with sneakers. You know, it's different. Those aren't slabbed and... It's a whole different it's a whole different thing but like with cards like they're so unique i mean the SKUs, like you have millions millions of different SKUs. then you have 10 three different grading companies that are worth talking about and 10 different grades in our case like 15 or bgs as well i mean there's you know multiply the SKUs by 20 probably <laughs> more 30 and that's how many real SKUs there are because you know a psa 9 is different from a psa 8 in value in that in that card so there's just Price discovery is just really, really, really hard. So, and as an investor, as a as a you know potential buyer or seller of a card, you know that's why eBay is so powerful. Is you throw it on eBay and the price is discovered through a second price auction. That's not the most efficient way most of the times to sell a card. It shouldn't be, but that's because there's there's some I would say lack of infrastructure and tools. Like if you want to insure your collection right now, you have I mean nobody knows how much it's worth um, with any precision. Uh, and so those are the kind of things that just, and there are a lot of companies that I hope are successful, even if we're not in that space, or even if we are, we just need that to happen, um, you know, for cards to be taken more seriously by a, a broader community. You're seeing that with vintage. I mean, I, we're certainly with PSA, I mean, we see, go on the 1952 top set registry, for example, and PSA, PSA card.com, like. You know, there's new sets being created almost on a weekly, monthly basis, and these are new to the hobby people. And that's a, you know, that's a real class. That's art. I mean, that stuff's in the Smithsonian. It's in, it's in the Met. Um, you know, 1952 tops and pre-war tobacco cards. So you're seeing it there, but we need more of it for the, you know, kind of more modern stuff. Um, is your company going to get into like asset-backed loans off of the cards? Do you already do that, or are you going to get into that? We don't do it today. We've considered it. Um, it's not our top priority, but maybe. Uh, do you want to share a couple of your top priorities outside the pillars? Um, well, I mentioned it before. So our big one right now is kind of internal infrastructure and imaging. Got it, uh, got people it. are really noticing. Um, number three, as I mentioned, is tech investment. You know, we're really focused on software for collectors. Um, you know, another one I'll call it is, again, the, the marketplace ambition, which we already have. I mean, Golden's one of the, I'd say, number two behind eBay, you know, at 
you know, high-end cards, uh, making that experience better for people, um, making sure every time you buy a slab, even if it's not ours, you know, Golden stands behind it, and, um, you know, that's the best place to go for high-end. What do you think of, uh, sometimes people like to move from one grading company to another, or in the industry, I guess it's called cracking the slab. Uh, mm. What do you think about that? Um, well, I'm not a fan of it because it hurts the population reports. I wish our companies would collaborate more to share information on, hey, you know, this person sent this slab and we cracked it. Here's the label so you can remove it from your pop report. I think all of our pop reports are dirty uh, because of that. Um, that's number one. You know, number two, I, you know, people say they do that for good intentions, and I think most of the time that's true. But unfortunately, I don't know if it's one or two or ten percent. But sometimes they crack the card and alter it, and then resubmit it, trying to get a better grade than it deserves. Um, we're going to be combating that with our fingerprinting technology. Um, you know, it's just we see it. You know, unfortunately, back before PSA was taking images of cards, so reason number eighty-five why we're taking images of cards. You know, they'd submit a PSA eight, get it. Someone else would buy it, they'd touch it up and resubmit it, hoping that we gave it a 9 or a 10. And it did happen a few times, and we've bought many of those back, and others we frankly can't tell. Like, if that card came back to us raw again, we'd grade it. That's how good these, these you know, fraudsters are. Um, so that's the bad side of it. Uh, you know, and, and people, you know, PSA will say it's altered, and then the person just sends it to BGS or somewhere else hoping they don't see it or vice versa. You know, it's just, it's one big, like, who can we get it past? <laughs> um, so I, I'm very, I, again, I probably have a pessimistic side to it. You know, why would you do that? <laughs> um, but I get it, you know, graded cards at the end of the day are, are carry a premium over raw cards for good reason. Um, so it's on the grading companies, it's on us to be as good as possible at catching everything and being as accurate as possible and consistent as possible. That's really hard 50,000 times a day, but, um, yeah, I would argue we're very good at it at that scale, but we can always be better. So crackouts are a big, a good example of technology we're building to kind of protect against. Got it. Um, what do you think of movement of fractional ownership in the uh, collectible space? I think it's really important. I mean, you're seeing this in sports teams, you know, as the, as the values of the teams get so large, there's only so many people who can afford it. I mean, we're seeing this now in cards, like some of the high end vintage, like the Honus Wagner, Mickey Mantles, like you, there's now like five or six people maybe, I'm sure there's more, but those who actually care who could also afford to increase the price by purchasing it. Fractional is the only way to kind of keep the liquidity in that asset at that price or higher. And I think it really works for the, for the big ticket items. I'm a little confused why a lot of people are trying to do it on like modern stuff um, that's, you know, sub thousand dollars. I see a few startups like that. I mean, you know, fine, but the volatility in that stuff is just so aggressive, fractional, you know, look at um, Luca Prism Silvers. I mean, they were like nine grand. Now they're like three. Man, there's like Peloton stock is the same way, I suppose. But um, you <laughs> know, worse. But yes. Okay. <laughs> but you know, so I guess anything can be volatile. But it's just it's it's it feels like there needs to be more regulation in it. Uh, you know, to to protect people because um, liquidity is not the same as Peloton stock um, in these fractional things. And I love it for these high end assets, though. You know, like if you want to get a piece, I used to hate it, and I'm, I'll be the first to admit I would blow these guys up on Twitter. But, if, and that was back before I would <laughs> to, to uh, defend myself before these things were really, really, really out of reach. I mean, now you have sports cards that are twenty plus million dollars. Um, now it's really you know useful. 
fractional. We haven't, we haven't seen that price, though, come public. Which card are you referring to? Is that the oh, famous Mantle? Or is yeah, that... there's dozens. I mean, there's probably four or five Honus Wagner T206s that would meet that bill. The Certainly the Mantle, 52 tops 10, I would say, is in that category. Um, I mean, you know, right there, that's five, because there's three PSA 10 Mantles. Right there. And then, by the way, there's tons that will never sell, like the PSA, the Pop 1 PSA 10 51 Bowman Mantle, I would argue, is in that category. Um, there's, you know, probably when you total up 10 to 20 cards that are in that category. Well, wow. there's probably even a few modern. Like, I'd bet you the LeBron, um, which hasn't been seen yet, the Ultra Ultimate uh, Logo Man uh, from 2003, not the vertical, not the horizontal one, but the vertical one that's. That allegedly has been pulled, but nobody knows where it is. I would because bet you that. Has it been graded or no? Uh, not in our pop report. It may it. have. I'm not sure about the other. I don't think so. Got it. Um, most of those cards have been robbed, but like that's an example of a card I'd argue is 15 to 20 million, probably 20. So there's the listeners, and some of them obviously are sports fans, some are not sports fans, but they're hearing about these crazy numbers. COVID has really had the market go up. How do you suggest they get involved, or do you suggest they don't get involved? In cards or in yeah, in cards. Oh, I I think it's a great time. I think it, it's always a good time for vintage and um, the scarce stuff. Jordan, LeBron, the, you know, don't I? If you're just dipping your toes in, like maybe avoid playing off the speculating of rookies. I mean, that's high risk, high reward. Like if you picked John Morant last year, you're doing great, you know. But if you picked uh, Zion, <laughs> you know, you're not doing so well. So, but it's that's the fun of it. I mean, that's like crypto. I mean, you can certainly play the casino. Um, but if you want to, you know, pick blue chip investments in cards, I mean, go buy Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle cards from the fifties and you can buy in PSA ones, twos, like those things have just as much upside as the big ones. And those are accessible. And what's the entry point? Where should they be finding this stuff? Um, I mean, there's a lot of good places. eBay is the best for kind of raw and low end slabs. Golden's the best for high end slabs for baseball vintage. I'd choose memory lane or heritage. Um, those auction houses, they're awesome for, for vintage baseball at any grade. And you as the expert, what do you like to read? What do you like to listen to? What do you like to watch? Where are you gathering your information and where are you learning? So if, my, if the listeners wanted to cheat and try to copy you, what can they be looking at? So I've, uh, this maybe makes me sound stupid. I have never once listened to a podcast or watched a YouTube video on cards. And I, I'm going to keep my streak alive. Um, no offense. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think you should do that if you find it useful. To me, it's just, you know, I'm on eBay two or three hours a day. I'm on Golden. I'm on all the Heritage. I'm on all the sites. Getting a feel, soaking in the pricing, what's of reading the descriptions. I'm very active on Instagram and Twitter um, for cards. I would highly recommend the former Instagram. You know, post your cards, learning through comments, direct messages. There's no substitute. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of our PSA magazine, quick plug, but it actually, I'm the editor, but I, we put a lot of time into, you know, collector and investor focused articles. Like last month we covered the game Jersey autograph Jordan card from 97. There's only 23 of them. It's like the coolest card ever. And we actually, PSA is graded like nine or 10 of them. And we put and each one's unique. And so we put a picture like that kind of, I'd read, you know, kind of highly edited content. Um, yeah. That's what I would suggest. Just start, just start getting in the mix, though. That's the only way to learn. Great. And then our last question is... <laughs> yeah. And the last question is really just, can you give us a couple predictions of cards uh, that you feel three years from now are going to be appreciating? 
Ooh, um, vintage for sure. Uh, I, I vintage basketball in particular and football. Baseball gets all the love, but look at it today. Like, what's the big sport in the U.S.? The top two. It's basketball and football. It's not baseball. And those vintage cards. Look at Bill Russell. Right. Look at Wilt. Look at Larry Bird. Look at Magic. Look at even the early Jordan stuff. Like. That stuff is really, in my opinion, has upside. Football, too. Look at the old Namath cards. Look at any, honestly, anything pre-1980 um, in football is big. Um, I actually pulled one out. I truly believe wax. Uh, so, like, these, this is a pack. Nothing special. but What year is that? 82. Nothing special. But um, I've got, you can't see it, but I've got packs all over the wall here. Um, just like wine. I mean, people open wine, collecting wine. People open boxes and packs too. So the supply will go down while demand, in theory, will go up because more and more people are getting into the hobby. So I would collect wax packs from, frankly, any year. I'd even go into the 80s, even though that's the junk era. But 60s, 50s, 60s, and you can buy these things. They're cheaper than Luca rookies. <laughs> you can go buy a 1962 Tops pack right now for like three grand. And that's cheaper than a Luca Silver Prism rookie. So I think those have so much upside. Vintage packs. I even do modern boxes, 90s, 2000s. Like pick LeBron, pick the big rookie years, 96, 2003. Uh, I'd pick 2019 because of Jaw, 2018 because of Luca. You know, just stockpile wax, bo unopened boxes. And, and you again, would buy the box and just hold on to it, and then at some yeah, point exit with the actual box or actually open it up one day? No, never open it. Never open it. Just like wine. It'll be more valuable in the future. People open it. It's the, it's the one thing in our, in our hobby where scarcity will go down. You, you can, or scarcity will go up. Supply will go down. I mean, you could argue like, you know, cards do get lost in the mail and there's fire and theft. But, you know, by and large, supply stays constant for, for single cards. But in wax, it does not. It goes down. And... Because I open it. I'm an idiot. Not you know. I'll have a glass of wine one night and open a box of cards. But I know a lot of people. Like there's a, um, I won't say who, but there's a very well-known collector who buys high-end wax with the per intent of opening it. And what do you so, think about the um, more of the fringe sports that are starting to expand, whether it's like Formula One or wrestling or obviously there's uh, women's tennis or other women's cards and soccer cards. Is that, is that a buying opportunity or is that just the moment? No, I think it's buying opportunity. I'm I'm investing in soccer cards personally. Um, I thought about doing F1. I don't really know that sport that well. But um, another one that not many people think of is the non-sports, like the Marvel, the you know pop culture cards. Uh, a lot of upside there. I think soccer soccer is the world's largest sport, and it's. I think I put this in our magazine. So at the time we published it, September of last year, it was. Um, 0.9 percent of the total cards that we had graded at PSA. 0.9. Wow. And that had doubled from the start of the year. So in nine months of 2021, it had went from 0.45 to 0.9% as a percentage of total. Of, of the 40 million cards we've graded, less than 1% were soccer, yet it's the world's largest sport. So I think it's, I mean, it's not as popular in the U.S. where I argue most of the um, liquidity is in cards, but that trend has to be good for that investment, I would say. And are you sticking to the goats there, Pele, Ronaldo, Messi, or are you going beyond that because of the market growing? I think vintage always is good. So I've been, I'm, you know, with some friends have been buying some vintage, frankly, anyone, you know, that's, you know, a Hall of Famer from pre-1980. 
Soccer's a little hard modern because they're so sticker driven and stickers are reproduced year after year. Like you could just call Panini up until a certain point. I forget when they stopped this, but like three years later, you could just order stickers from the rookie year. And so it was very unclear when the actual printed rookie was. So soccer cards are a bit unique, but that's part of the mystique about them. Um, but no, I'm sticking just like just like everything. You got to stick to if you want to make money at it. You can. I mean, I'm not a sport, soccer collector so much as I am an investor. It's one of the few things that I think is I don't really have a huge connection to, but I think is a great investment. So if you want it to be a great investment, you need to stick to the the guys you know in that sport that you know will have you know sustained value. Well, Nat, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Taking Collector's Universe Private to Dirty Pop Reports to the legendary hidden LeBron Ultimate Logo Man. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Of course. Talk to you soon. Smart People with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.